Inner Voice. A heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice podcast. It's so great to be with you today. I'm Dr. Fujian Zain. I'm a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. Our heartfelt chat is about what matters most in our lives, our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of love. For all of you beautiful people who have been asking about our latest books and seminars, just wanted to share some of the information with you. Um, the seminar that is coming up for therapists and um, life coaches um, is going to be February 10th to 12th. Um, the weekend, which is um, on Zoom. And um, I would love to have the therapist or life coaches who want to learn uh, the awareness integration theory and um, have that, you know, do that with their client and bring it as a form of intervention or treatment into what they do best already. We have gotten amazing results um, reducing depression and anxiety. This is an evidence-based We've done a lot of different research as um, in a self-help level or in a therapeutic level and a coaching level. And I'm sure that um, if you are a therapist or a coach, you will really, really gain a lot of um, amazing tools to be able to uh, work with your client, actually. Now, side by side with that, the book that is out, it has been out for a while and I've gotten raging reviews. It's Awareness Integration Therapy, the Clear the Past, Create a New Future, and live a fulfilled life now. Um, it was forwarded by Jeffrey Zeig. Um, and um, you have uh, a lot of different masters in, theory, in theories uh, talk about this book and uh, talk about the awareness integration theory, which is very, very helpful. It's, um, it, for, it's a structured, uh, multi-dimensional, multi-theoretic, um, uh, and I brought a lot of the different theories together and interventions to be able to help people very quickly. We are going to launch a Fuzan app um, any week right now. And obviously when therapists and coaches are certified in this model and method, um, their name will also be in the app and people who are utilizing the app as a self-help model can come in and utilize a coach and a therapist when it's needed and they really like this mirroring effect or wanted to go deeper in those works. So I really, really recommend that. Um, a book that is a little bit more uh, tangible for what we're going to be talking today, uh, which was written by my colleagues and I, uh, Intentional Parenting, A Practical Guide to Awareness Integration Theory. It was written by two of my amazing colleagues, Nicole, uh, Dr. Nicole Jafari um, and Dr. Eileen Manukian, which their expertise is in education of uh, young children and children all the way to adult. Um, we take actually every single chapter toward a particular age group and go over all the um, cognitive, um, motor skills, emotional skills, all of that is natural and normal and you can look at the functioning that way and also look at some of the concerns or difficulties that um, maybe parents have or educators have and also look at the uh, the whole path through the awareness integration theory so you can create a practical guide 
for each age group through the awareness integration theory of how to discipline, how to move forward and um, support, support to not only teachers, parents, grandparents who work with children. Um, so this is an amazing book uh, for that group. And I really, really suggest it. Um, it's an easy read, although it has a lot of scientific background, but it's an easy read. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Bibi Purayesh. She holds a bachelor's degree in neuroscience and education from the University of Pittsburgh and a master's degree in developmental psychology from Columbia University, where her work focused primarily on children's development of mathematical thinking and cognitive neuroscience. She's worked as a learning specialist and educational therapist in private practice for over a decade. While the emphasis of her work is on remediating learning disabilities in a one-on-one -on -one setting, she is also a sought-after speaker and community advocate for children and families around learning rights. She works with children grades 1 to 12 and covers a wide range of learning difficulties, including dyslexia, ADHD, and the spectrum disorders. In 2020, Dr. Piraj launched the Difference is Not Deficit project to help promote the importance of seeing learning disability as a social justice issue and cornerstone of her doctorate dissertation was that. In addition to her private practice and advocacy work, she is also adjunct faculty at Pepperdine University Graduate School of Education and Psychology. Uh, please connect with her via her website, one of a kind, one of one kids www.oneofonekids.org. Subscribe to this podcast and my YouTube channel and connect with me through my website, foodranzain.com or any of the other social medias. Um, if you like self-help books, then I really, really suggest uh, for you to get Life Reset, uh, which is the awareness integration path to create the life you want. In this book, you'll go through the process and you can journal and um, in, in different areas of life, almost 21 different areas of life where you could really get amazing awareness and even the process of integration through just journaling. And we've created amazing results on those. And that's why after this, it went to Fujian app, which will be launching any day. And I will let you know as soon as possible. So I want to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you. So share with me everything that you need and I will either have the expertise and talk for, um, about that subject or I'll share with other expert, experts to come in and share them with you. So one of those experts who we're going to chat with today is Dr. Bibi Pirayesh. There she is. Well, welcome to the show, BB Piraish. It is so nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, today, let's talk about something that you are an expert in, and that is uh, working with um, children who um, might have some vulnerabilities as far as learning. 
And um, I think this is one of the scariest thing that parents go through. Mm -hmm. um, they don't know. Many times um, I've worked with parents where they try, they, they're scared, but they also kind of try to justify it. And they'll, you know, as a parent, we don't want to find anything wrong with our children. So even if we think there's something that is not up to par or that they need support or um, that something's going on, obviously the first thing is I'm going to go to the pediatrician, I'm going to find out and I'll kind of do um, I'll talk to the teachers and then I'll kind of do this kind of like comparative aspect with um, the age group that maybe my child is going to, through and, you know, whether they're up to par with everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, but I've also says that although many of the parents that I work with do this, there is a place of denial and I don't want to see it. Don't tell me. And they'll go through a justification which it doesn't help their children because the, the sooner that the child is um, diagnosed and treated, many of these issues can be handled uh, much faster. And we're talking about learning disabilities or sometimes they have issues, but the issue is not actually learning disability, but they might have, um, you know, can't hear well or can't see well or can't comprehend well. Um, or they're in a spectrum. And um, those are all the different angles that um, an anxious parent wants to know, wants to fix it, but sometimes just also avoids it. So can you share with us your view and your experience on this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you have it exactly right. I think that for a lot of parents, um, there's a great deal of anxiety, but also a great deal of shame associated with the idea of, um, you know, getting a learning disability diagnosis for their child. And I think one of the, the main reasons for that, and I think that a lot of it, um, you know, is, is also culturally dependent. And so we have to be very aware of kind of the cultural background that people come from. But um, one of the main reasons is that learning disability has been very wrongly kind of associated with or equated with intelligence or IQ. Um, and it's not at all. <laughs> so, uh, you know, kind of dismantling that myth is one of, um, I think, the biggest jobs that those of us who are in education and in psychology have. Because <clears throat> one reason that, you know, parents are, are concerned is that they think, oh, you know, my they're, they're going to put a label on my child and it's going to mean that they're not smart enough and they're not going to be able to succeed. Um, so that's one aspect. Another aspect that I find a lot is that, um, you know, some learning disabilities run in families, um, you know, like ADHD, for example. And, you know, we're in a generation in a time now where it's been to, a, a you know, it's, it's much more destigmatized than it used to be. Um, so, and uh, we know a lot more and understand a lot more. Um, that is usually not the case for the generations who are having children right now. Um, and so, you know, many times I find that parents went through their entire lives without a diagnosis. And so it's such a point of, it's such a sore point for them, such a point of vulnerability and shame just in their own experience. And they want to prevent their child from going through that same experience. Um, and so, you know, that that's sort of 
where some of their um, hesitation comes from. And of course, it actually, you know, when you go through the process, it actually ends up being exactly the opposite because what tends to happen is when they're able to allow their child to actually get their diagnosis and get the support that they need and, you know, go through the process, it ends up being very healing for the parents. Um, you know, I've had parents cry, you know, saying if I had this, you know, if I had the support when I was younger, my my life would have been completely different because so many of them just kind of powered through um, and survived their schooling years um, and still continue to struggle in their everyday life, not realizing that they could have gotten some of these supports. So, um, you know, there, there's kind of a, a, a combination, I think, and this is why Anytime I work with a child, it's really family work um, because the learning disability of the child impacts everyone and then everything in the family environment impacts the learning of the child. Um, so it's really important to kind of take all of these things into consideration. And, you know, for, ma for many parents, um, it's a journey, you know, with some people, I, I just know that, okay, well, we're going to begin right now. We're not going to call it anything. We're not going to label it. We're not going to tell the school um, if that's where we're at. Um, and then, you know, we're just going to work. We're just going to support uh, the student. We're going to remediate. Um, and then as the process goes through and the parents are able to see the shifts that happen for a student as a result of that support, slowly they're able to come to terms with, okay, well, I can understand why if we had a diagnosis, it would be so much easier to get accommodations, for example, through the school system. And that would make my child's experience and as a result, my experience so much easier. So, you know, you have to let people arrive at that place themselves. Um, and, and, and they often do. Um, I've, I've occasionally had, um, you know, situations, especially in situations where maybe parents are going through a divorce where one parent just is in complete denial and like refuses to even engage. Um, so occasionally things like that happen, but for the most part, if you recognize that adults and parents have their own process to go through, um, you know, we, we usually are able to move in the right direction. One of the um, situations that I've come to a lot of times is that parents hold the shame and hold the stigma. They really blame themselves. They really start looking at what have I done? Is it my genetics? Is it that I did something wrong, you know, while I was pregnant? Um, and then, you know, sometimes the parents is like, oh, it was from your side. No, it wasn't. It was from your side. So the blame goes back and forth. Um, so these are all the conditions that are you know, um, they're kind of normal. Like we as human beings just go through this normal process until we come to an acceptance. Sometimes I've watched uh, parents say, we're going to get privately treated, but I don't want the schools or the teacher to know because I don't want anything to be in their, um, in, in their record, whether it's the educational record or the medical record. And unfortunately, um, the child might not be able to get the best um, medical advice, nor uh, they might get the best services from school if everything is being done in a hush-hush level. The other side of it is that the child 
themselves get into the stigma because it's as if like there's something wrong with them and they have to be hush hush and it has to be secret and they have to show up another way in front of their peers while they're struggling. So um, actually coming to terms with this and moving along with treatment is such a healthier way um, for the parents and the child, especially since it doesn't only affect that child and the family, it also affects all the siblings because they're treating one child very differently and they're asking all of the other children in the family to treat that child in a different way. And sometimes they also hold the shame versus, you know, like, oh, my, my sibling, there's something wrong with one of my siblings. And they hold this shame and they have to hold the secret even when they go out or they're with their friends. While if this um, concept is handled as there's no shame, there's every one of us have some vulnerabilities and, um, you know, we can learn how to cope with it. We can learn how to manage it. We can learn how to, um, you know, despite the vulnerability, grow in so many different layers and um, I think coming to terms with that for the family, for the parents are so crucial. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the bottom line is, um, you know, without getting too deep into, you know, the, the cultural values and ideologies that create such shame around disability, um, the bottom line is that there is a grieving process and there's a grieving process for the child. There's a grieving process for the parents. And as you said, with the siblings, you know, we know there's a great deal of research, for example, that shows, um, you know, if you have a, a, a diagnosis of something um, like, you know, an autism spectrum disorder, um, the impact of that on the siblings, because now the, the child that has that diagnosis is getting all of the parental attention and time and the impact of that on, on, the, on the other kids. So there's definitely a grieving process all around. And unfortunately, um, in our school system, or even in, you know, the medical system or the kind of the, with psychologists, I think, tend to do a better job. But generally speaking, in the school system, we don't talk about that enough. So, you know, when a child is tested and diagnosed and there's like an IEP meeting where everyone sits down for goals and all of that, it's very rare that someone says, okay, this is going to be having a big impact on all of you um, as, you know, the family members. So what are the services that we're, you know, that we're going to look at for that? I mean, the expectation is not at this point for the school system to provide those services. We can barely get them to provide the necessary services for students. Um, but at least the acknowledgement of that and a conversation around that, I think, is super important, but always missed. Um, and, you know, there there's some learning disabilities that are more, uh, you know, something like, for example, you know, dyslexia is not the correct term, but like something that falls under a specific learning disability, like in math or in reading or whatever it is. Um, if there's no comorbidity with anything else, that tends to be somewhat more manageable because it's very specific to a task, even though, of course, if there's a reading issue, it, it has a huge impact. But then there are other things like ADHD or autism, which you know, are, are just so pervasive in the everyday life of the student that they impact every aspect of the family's life as well. 
Um, and it's just very rare that we have that conversation. So, um, so yes, I think recognizing grief, recognizing that everyone deals with grief differently. So like you said, some people immediately jump to kind of blaming the other side's genes or, um, you know, whatever it is, we all go through our grieving process differently. But one of the the major things that I try to do in my work with families is to is to get them to understand that this is not some horrible thing that's happened or some unfortunate thing that they need to work through. Rather, it's an incredible opportunity for taking a pause and unpacking and addressing and feeling and acknowledging and learning how to communicate. I mean, it's a really if we take it for the opportunity that it is, um, I think anytime anyone in a family system brings forward a difference, any kind of difference sort of from the norm, that provides an incredible lens into, into that family system and into ourselves and our past and our experiences. Um, and so it's, it really sort of becomes our job to take that on and to see it as something positive as opposed to something unfortunate or negative. Um, so I think how you view it also makes a difference. One of the diagnoses that has been rising, obviously um, autism spectrum has, but side by side, I think ADHD and, um, has been specially for children. And I think there's a confusion sometimes where uh, teachers tend to um, kind of pseudo-diagnose ADHD in their um, room much faster because of seeing some of the signs. But parents, um, sometimes they don't really know whether this is a child who just is high-strung. Um, they're very intelligent. They get bored fast in the class, the schooling system and the class uh, the way it's being taught just doesn't capture their attention. So part of losing attention and having all of this amazing energy that's there uh, needs to go somewhere, but they're being taught to just shh, sit down and do it this way and they can, so they get irritated. They won't, you know, all of that. Another one is um, that they are, um, they're very anxious and part of not paying attention uh, losing memory, not focusing, all of that is because they just have such a high anxiety that they're consistently dealing with um, what's going on inside and they lose uh, the attention from outside. And then we also see some of the families say, okay, uh, this might be ADD or ADHD, but when we're actually doing the test, we see that it isn't as high anxiety. What are your suggestions to uh, some of the parents that um, are in our audience um, and how to deal with, with their child that it might seem like they have some symptoms of ADD or ADHD? Um, and if you could share with us some of those sim symptoms, it could be something that they could be looking for. And then if obviously they're very young or that they're coming to their adolescent, but we have parents who really just don't want to utilize medication um, mm -hmm. because they just don't agree with it. They don't think that their child, you know, can their, you know, we could do behavioral um, the therapeutic um, interventions. And what is it that they can do in order to one, do the accurate and correct diagnosis and then 
you know, whether if they don't want to go through the medication route, what are the other possibilities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so ADHD is, um, I think it's probably the most complex and difficult of um, all the learning disabilities to both diagnose and to treat. Um, there is a, a, an incredible amount of misdiagnosis. Uh, one, because of all the different things that can present as ADHD, for example, um, an auditory processing disorder or trauma, um, you know, all sorts of things can kind of create similar symptoms uh, to ADHD. So that's one reason. The other reason is that, you know, a, a lot of people are under the misconception that, you know, we have some um, very exact way of of measuring and diagnosis. Like, you know, we can go into the brain and take a picture of it and say, oh, here's an ADHD brain versus this other brain. And that's not how the diagnosis happens at all. It happens through, you know, basically asking everyone in the child's environments questions. Um, And, you know, people are filling out questionnaires and surveys. And, um, you know, obviously there's an observational component, you know, with the, with the diagnostic um, or, or the diagnostician and the, and the child, but it's still really so much dependent upon kind of the symptoms that are being presented. So, and, and, you know, anytime you have something like that, it, it's, it's difficult. And so one, um, one person can take all of that data and interpret it one way, and someone else can take that data and interpret it a different way. Um, and then of course, there's the, the issue of, you know, uh, the fact that we, we ask children essentially in, in the school system, especially in the elementary years, we really ask them to do something that's quite unnatural for them, which is to sit quietly, you know, don't speak, sit in a, I mean, you know, I have my own critiques of the education system and all the ways that it, that it in fact, um, you know, kills the curiosity and the joy of learning in children. Um, And for boys, especially, that tends to be really difficult. Um, But with all of that said, uh, and I I know that this, you know, there's a a great deal of controversy around, you know, is ADHD really even a real thing? Or is it a, a result of our modern day and, you know, technology and all of these things? Um, and I, I think all of those discussions are valid. However, um, as someone who has observed children um, who who truly struggle with, you know, you know, essentially ADHD is also misunderstood as an attention disorder, but it's really an executive function disorder. It's the inability to be able to essentially feel and know yourself in time and space. Um, and, and so, you know, as someone who's worked with real cases of that, I can say that it's very much, um, you know, regardless of how we decide to talk about it, it's definitely a very real experience for the person that is struggling with it. Um, and I also understand the hesitation around medication. You know, that's that's another thing that I think um, we really have to be mindful about where parents are and allow them to, again, go through their own process. Um, medication doesn't work for every single ADHD student. Um, for the ones that it does work for, it can be a complete day and night experience. 
Um, but it doesn't work for everyone. For some students, it works a little bit, but then there's so many side effects that it's really not, it's really not worth it. Um, so it really is one of those things that you have to go on a case-by-case -case basis. And, and the medication is also, it's a very exact art and science. You know, parents have to work with someone who's really willing to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until they find the just right cocktail, so to speak, for that particular student, because everyone's, um, you know, brain chemistry is so different and, you know, all the other components in their life are contributing factors. So it's, uh, I, I, I think that, you know, dealing with kids who, who have that diagnosis uh, really requires just an, an and despite its prevalence, an extra level of understanding. Um, and, you know, there are there are some, uh, you know, non-pharmaceutical kind of more herbal medications that, you know, there's some research behind. And I encourage parents to try all the different routes, but because it is a process, it's really a process of coming to understand yourself and your child. Um, but, you know, because I have also been able to see the way that pharmaceutical medication can make such a huge difference for some children, I, I would never say, no, 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 it's just completely wrong or, you know, don't do that. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I understand the larger critiques around, um, you know, people's hesitations. I, I completely do. But I think that, you know, the way that I approach it is, how does this feel for the child and where is the child's functionality and you know what do we need to do to best support that an adhd medication is actually one that has been on the market for a very long time there's a lot of research behind it we know that it's not something that you know stays in the body so you can always try it if it doesn't work you can take your child off of it um, and you know move forward in a different direction as well so i, I don't think that we need to have as much anxiety around medication as we do. But on the other hand, I also think that we have to have a healthy degree of skepticism when you take your child in and they just do like a solo ADHD diagnosis, which you should never do. They should always do a comprehensive evaluation to rule out other things that could be presenting as ADHD. Um, and then immediately putting the child on, um, on medication. I, I had a, a case very recently um, where there was a, a diagnosis of ADHD, but there was also a diagnosis of a mood disorder. And, you know, this child had been on ADHD medication for, you know, the majority of her life. And that was really negatively impacting her mood and her, you know, her mood disorder. So that's why it's so important that we look at everything as a whole and we never just kind of treat one part. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that's one of the things that gets missed a lot as well. I also think that the parents who um, have a child that is possibly diagnosed as ADHD have to learn a lot of their own behavior modification and how they create and set up the structure of home. I've watched the parents say, okay, you know, if the child was diagnosed and finally on a medication, their expectation is, all right, then all should be fine. And, or the other side of it is they go into this powerlessness that it, it creates inability or the, and, and enables the child to do some behaviors that are um, can be definitely shifted 
but they're, they're not necessarily working with it because they're kind of not justifying it. So I've watched either one area is shaming them, making them bad and wrong and, and kind of like powerless against what am I going to do? You're never going to get better. Or it's enabling whatever they do. It's like, it's okay. It's just their ADD. Yeah. And I think parents have a lot to do with how do they create a structure of learning for a child who has ADD, such as it's very common for a child who has ADD that they they lose focus. So they go in the kitchen and they open all the cupboards and then they let it go. Um, or they're doing something and in the middle of it, they just drop it and they go somewhere else. So you have either a parent that is like yelling and screaming and shaming and all of that, or someone, it's okay, it's just their ADD. So I just wanted to give an example of how sometimes this works and it it doesn't, you don't need to shame them. I get it that for a lot of parents, this is very frustrating to live with someone who does these things and they forget, they forget, you know, to turn off the light or do a lot of different things. I've had clients who, you know, they've, they've grown up with the HD. So as they're like a teenager, they left the key in the car and the, uh, in the front of the house and they, parents are yelling and screaming about how could you do that like we were so lucky that you know the somebody didn't just come in and steal it so there's a lot that goes on and yet I think that if the parents also get trained in how to create some of those behavioral shifts with um, and condition their children as they're growing up and how to pay attention how to create structures so yes this is part of their vulnerability but that doesn't mean that behaviorally, if somebody gets trained in them and practices them, that it doesn't work for them. Because they ultimately, as an adult who needs to work, needs to work with other people, who's going to have their own family, who are going to have, you know, to be in corporate structure or business structures, they need to learn these skills. And these skills don't just show up with medication. It will show up because the parents are aware and they're not only training themselves, but creating structure in the whole household to create that training. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you you brought that up because um, that's the other thing, even for the kids where medication is like a, a miracle drug, it is never enough on its own. It really has to be a combination um, there has to be, in, in my opinion, educational therapy, um, other types of therapies if needed. And that's really, I think, the, tr the trickiest thing with ADHD is that um, it really requires a family-based approach to intervention because it really is about all the systems that are in place or not in place um, that that create um you know, the, the possibility for success or not. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of times because ADHD runs in families, you know, you, you have parents who themselves have ADHD and so they struggle with a lot of those systems. Um, and, you know, that's even more reason to get support. They say that, um, you know, people with ADHD do really well in the army because they, they respond so well to that very strict structure. Um, and that's essentially, you know, what you need to create for them. And then when you, what you need to slowly teach them to create for themselves, because you're exactly right. The goal is always around functionality. Um, you know, the, the goal of parenting, I think, is to raise a child that can go off on their own and, you know, be able to 
function and, and, and be a, a contributing member of society and, and, you know, live a life that's based around their own well-being, et cetera. So um, th I think that's always a good gauge is, you know, if, if I'm shaming and blaming or if I'm just like enabling and, and letting it go, what is this going to look like for this person when I'm no longer in the picture? Um, and I think that's a that's a huge component of it. Um, and, you know, I think ADHD again is especially frustrating because the the most sort of like basic commonsensical things that we expect from another human being is sometimes missing. So basically the the ability to to plan the simplest things, the ability to, you know, sort of think to yourself, okay, I have to be out the door in the morning by this time. There's no way that I can wake up 10 minutes before and 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 be ready. Like just sort of like basic stuff is is um doesn't quite work with the ADHD brain. And so really recognizing, I think, for parents that this is in fact a, you know, for for lack of a better term, a brain disorder or or a a, a, a difference that really prevents this person from from functioning and it's not to make them mad it's not them misbehaving it's not them being lazy i think sometimes just that paradigm shift can be really difficult um but you know i, I always think parents who are, who are dealing with a with a child with adhd are you know they're the, what they're practicing more than anything else is patience um, and again, kind of along the lines of trying to see it as something positive, you know, try to see it as this is an opportunity for me to practice patience and not lose my mind right now. And of course, we we do sometimes and that's that's OK and that's expected. But to constantly remember that this is not a typical brain that is just trying to make life difficult for you. This is a differently wired brain that is truly struggling with some of these you know, basic things, um, I think can help. Dr. Bibi Nazpirayash, everyone. Um, Bibi, you have launched the Difference is um, Not Deficit project. Um, can you share a little bit about that project? Um, you're launching it in 2020. And um, what does the project do? Uh, what What do people know need to know about it? Sure. Um, I mean, that, that really came out of you know, as as you remember, uh, 2020s when we all went into lockdown, and then all of a sudden, overnight, teachers had to figure out basically how to have, you know, how to do schooling on Zoom, um, and children had to learn how to do that as well. And in many ways, I think that that had some positive impacts for um, the disability community. Of course, people with disabilities. Um, had been, you know, advocating for things like working from home or access or, you know, having all of all of the things that a student needs in one place online. You know, that's something that I had been advocating for forever. And it was always like, no, we can't do it. It's impossible. Um, but somehow overnight, we all figured out how to do it in the in the pandemic. Um, but, you know, the other component of it that was really, you know, difficult, of course, was how much that isolated everyone. Um, and, you know, generally speaking for kids with with learning disabilities, what we always encourage is a um, sort of multi-sensory approach. And one of the things that happens 
on Zoom or on computers is you basically cut off, you know, so many of the senses. And so you're kind of really functioning in this virtual two-dimensional odd world. Um, and, you know, that that has a huge impact on learning. And then, of course, the other side of it, which you would know about even more than I, was is the mental health component. You know, I was seeing so many of my of my students really struggling with their mental health, with the isolation, with the lack of, um, you know, all the learning that happens as a result of just being around other human beings, other kids, et cetera. Um, and then so many of the experiences that people were having around, you know, diagnosis, around difficulties in school, all of that was happening in isolation. So I was, every family that I was working with was going through it, but no one, everyone assumed that they're the only ones that are struggling like this. Like they couldn't understand that. No, actually everybody is struggling like this. So, um, you know, the, the, the project really grew out of a, a desire to, to get people to share those stories and to speak with one another um, and to kind of understand that they're, they're not alone. Um, you know, there's, there's actually quite a big community of us that are all struggling with this. Um, but, you know, doing it in isolation. So that was a, the, a huge push behind it. And then the other push was, um, you know, kind of because so many other things were happening in the larger culture at the time around systems, um, you know, you know, what was happening, for example, with George Floyd and, you know, the everything that happened as, as a result of that and kind of our larger political structures. Um, and it was really a time where I felt like people could had the capacity to reflect on these questions, these very important questions around how much of it is my disability and how much of it is me being disabled by the system that I have to function in? And I think those are really important questions in education. Those are really important questions in mental health and psychology. Um, and so that was sort of another big push behind this project is to sort of reflect on and think about, okay, well, you know, what if I what if the system was able to adjust to me in the ways that I needed? What would that be? How would that be different for me? And what have been my experiences where I really was held back because of the expectations of a system that could have been a lot more flexible, but isn't being more flexible? Um, that with ADD and ADHD, because when the when the school systems uh, get get to know that this is the issue, a lot of them try to accommodate with timing, with um, you know, extending the test hours, dealing with people one on one, which has really created a lot more of success for people who were diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. Absolutely, and you know, it was it was very interesting because you know before the pandemic, I would consistently be trying to advocate for some of these things for for students like this is an ADHD child like could we just not have these deadlines with these like huge penalties if they don't meet the deadlines um and it, a lot of the time the answer was no um especially in a lot of private schools where you know they're not they're not required by law i guess to to adhere to some of these things um but then what happened with the with the pandemic is that suddenly we were all all in a way disabled um and so i feel like that that kind of shifted things like oh okay so 
all of the schools were like, we understand we're all going through this. So no deadlines, just as long as you get it in by the end of the semester. Um, and that was huge. That was huge for so many students. Um, and I, I just think that, you know, the pandemic provided such an important moment in time for all of us to be able to be more empathic and to kind of walk in the shoes of what the experiences of, of atypical learners or neurodiverse people is like a lot of the times. Um, and to just to have more sympathy and understanding around that. Um, so yeah, that was another big push behind the project. Beautiful. Um, anything we haven't shared that you really want our audience to know? Um, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, to me, it's, the, the most important thing when it comes to these things is trust your guts, don't be scared, educate yourself, get support, and know that it's going to be okay. Um, you know, there there is no reason for all the shame and stigma around, I mean, any disability, but, you know, learning disability, since that's what I'm kind of, that's where my work is because it's it's perfectly possible to live a happy functioning very successful life the more you understand it the better and pushing it away um that that's 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 just going to create more problems so that would be my my big kind of uh, <laughs> message if I, if I can have one <laughs> where can people find you dr piresh Sure. Um, I tend to be pretty active on LinkedIn, so that's usually a good uh, way to get a hold of me. And then all of my information is on my website, um, which is www.oneofonekids.org. Um, you know, on my social media, phone, email, and all of that is on there. And do you do testing um, and evaluation for children? I I don't do like a full you know I'm not a neuropsychologist so I don't do a full um, evaluation um, I do with every child um, I do a screening um, you know a, a lot of times parents come in and they're like we don't really know if if there is a reason to get testing and we don't want to invest in a five thousand dollar test or to go through this whole process with the public school system. Um, there are, you know, screenings that you can do um, for, you know, that are that take a lot less time and are much more affordable um, that basically give you information on, yes, move forward with testing or you know, this is something you need to look at more or no, there's really no processing issue going on. So let's talk about what else might be causing these issues. Um, so that's kind of a, a regular part of my practice. Um, but, you know, because my practice is, is so much through sort of word of mouth, a lot of the students who come to me already have a diagnosis, um, but that is not at all, you know, the way that it needs to be. I think a lot of people are just very blank and have no idea. They just know that, you know, they're screaming and pulling their hair around homework time um, and, and want to understand a little bit more. Um, so I offer those screenings um, as, as a way to help guide parents. Um, but for a full evaluation, I always refer to either the school system, depending on the circumstances, or a neuropsychologist. Beautiful. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me in our podcast. Thank you so much for having me and for giving airtime to this really, really important um, topic and issue. 
Um, and as a, a fellow Iranian woman, um, of course, I always <laughs> want to end with um, Zanzan Nagi Azadi as we're in the midst of this other, um, you know, huge, huge movement that is impacting, I think, you know, students, students in Iran to such a large extent. Um, and, you know, my heart is with them every single day. <laughs> so out of them, every time I see such a um, young group, even as young as um, elementary school and, or junior high, definitely high school, and of course, college students and, and young adults are out there. You know, the movement started with women. That's why um, the saying is women, life and, and liberty. It started with women and very soon, you know, men joined and, um, you know, we're rooting for them or we're there for them. We bring their voice to the world and, uh, you know, hopefully soon we will share their freedom um, in Iran and for them and across the world. So, yes, absolutely. And uh, thank you for um, opening that up again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, so, everyone, please... Um, connect with Dr. Pirayaj. Her, her promise is her book next year. So we're going to have her back. <laughs> her book is launched. Um, so thank you. Take care. Good care of yourself. And thank you for doing all you do, Dr. Pirayaj. Thank you. Likewise. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>